0: When I married Ryan, he brought loads and loads and loads of paraphernalia from his previous life into my new home.
1: You're welcome.
0: And I would look at this stuff and just want to vomit. And in particular, these bright red Teflon pots. And so one day, I packed them up in a red or in a Goodwill box, and he saw them, and it, an argument ensued. I said, I don't like them you know, your house should be a sanctuary of peace. And it didn't feel like that for me because it wasn't my stuff.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Family Life Blended. I'm Ron Deal. This donor-supported podcast helps blended families and those who love them pursue the relationships that matter most. It's great to have you along. Welcome to episode number 67, blended with grit, widowhood, and forming a new family. Hey, if you don't know, you can listen to this podcast online on your favorite podcast app or through the new and improved Family Life app where you can actually access the transcript. You can get content links. You can even take notes while you listen. How cool is that? That's the free Family Life app available in your app store. You know, because most step families follow a divorce, many of our guests come from a divorce situation. But today, we're talking about blended families formed after becoming a widow. Now, if you're a post divorce step family, hang with us because there's always something to learn. And I really believe this interview is going to inspire all of us. Jess Ronnie is an author, a speaker and a caregiver advocate. She is founder and executive director of The Lucas Project, a nonprofit dedicated to providing respite opportunities for special needs families. She and her husband, Ryan, have eight children, including their son, Lucas, who has profound special needs. Her story of beauty from ashes has been shared on the Today Show, Daily Mail, and the Huffington Post, and is detailed in her first book called Sunlight Burning at Midnight. Her latest book, though, Blended with Grit and Grace, is a book for blended families and the subject of our conversation today. Here now is my conversation with Ryan and Jessica Ronnie. Tell us a little bit about your family.
0: Well, I guess it all started in 2010 when we both lost our first spouses to brain cancer. I blogged from Michigan. Ryan blogged from Oklahoma. And a stranger who followed both of us from Pennsylvania reached out to me and said, hey, there's this grieving widower. He has three young children. I just think you could really be a source of encouragement to him. Hmm. And the rest is history. We started emailing and we met and we were married within a year. And He moved to Michigan. We adopted each other's kids, and we thought we were going to just live happily ever after. However...
2: (laughs) (laughs) Then there's there's, the however.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot more to the story when you are a blended family, or probably any family, really. We ended up moving to rural Tennessee a couple of years after we were married, Mm -hmm. had another baby together, our Annabelle.
2: And she makes number eight, right? Child She does. Yes,
0: eight children. Mm -hmm. And we lived what we thought was a simple life out in rural Tennessee until it wasn't all that simple anymore. We mm-hmm. have a child with profound special needs and autism. And as he aged, it just became more and more difficult. So we moved towards Nashville, thinking that would help remedy the situation and there would be more resources and support for him. And just found really that the South is really lacking mm-hmm. in anything for special needs families. And we are in the process of moving back to Michigan right now. We're actually in a temporary home. and building an accessible home for our family to live in in the future.
2: So listener, you just got a snapshot of this family story and we have a lot to unpack, don't we? (laughs) So let's just back up and start unpacking a little bit at a time. Jessica, in your book, you say that you met Ryan, you were drawn to him, and then you realized one day that you were grieving one person while simultaneously falling in love with another. I bet both of you are going through a similar journey there. I'd like for us to just unpack both sides of that, the grieving one person side and the falling in love with the other person side. So let's just start with who were you grieving and what's that backstory?
0: Well, I was grieving my late husband, Jason. Um, He had gone through his cancer journey for three years. Mm And in the middle of that, we were raising four children, actually had an unexpected pregnancy in the middle of all of it as well, and raising Lucas, um, our son with special needs. And honestly, I had kind of worked through a lot of the stages of grief, I believe, Mm -hmm. by the time he actually passed away, because it had been such a long, painful journey for our family. And there was a deep sadness when he passed away, but I think there was also something in me that was, at peace that he was no longer in pain Mm. and suffering Mm -hmm. and that cancer wasn't a taskmaster in my life anymore because that's really, really hard when you have four kids under six. So I think I was in a healthier place than Ryan was and I'll let Ryan dive into that a little bit Mm -hmm. by the time my husband passed away because it had been so long, but I think I jumped into a relationship with Ryan feeling like my grieving was pretty much all wrapped up in a nice little bow and I was ready to move on in life. And parts of me were ready, but there were also parts that would spring up out of the middle of nowhere. Like one example I can think of, brushing my teeth at night and looking over at the other sink Thinking like that sink would never be used again because mm-hmm. that was Jason's sink. Right. And like there sat his toothbrush and his toothpaste. So it was working through some of that. And all I can say for myself is we probably should have gotten some therapy. Mm-hmm. I know we used each other as therapists early mm-hmm. on. <laughs> and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Mm-hmm. It brought out a lot of feelings of insecurity and jealousy as. We talked about these people we had loved, but yet we were falling in love with each other. And it was just a really strange place to be.
2: You know, as you're talking, I'm reflecting on all those different elements. Again, so much there to unpack, and we will. We'll slow down and take a look at each of those little elements. But I think for the listener, the observation that I just want to make is that any significant loss, like the loss of a spouse has so many layers to it. There's so much involved in it. The length of time that you were grieving actually before he passed away versus somebody whose loss is a little bit shorter or sudden. You know, all of those things influence you, the kids, the journey, and they all have to be unpacked. And sometimes when you're listening to somebody else's story, you're thinking, well, that's sort of like mine, but not completely like mine. Well, yeah, nobody's story is exactly like yours. And so it's okay to absorb what you're hearing today and grab the elements that you can really relate to. So, Ryan, it sounds like your
1: story of loss was different than hers. Yeah, it was very different. And my first wife, we had our third child in December of 2009. And just a month after, she started getting headaches and feeling really uncomfortable. And we just thought it was pregnancy related, Mm -hmm. you know, just had a baby. Mm But just a week after her 30th birthday, they diagnosed her with a brain tumor. And within weeks it hemorrhaged and she was never the same. So she was diagnosed middle of March. And April 1st, she had the hemorrhage, uh, lost a lot of her cognitive skills and in and out of the hospital um, just for what, four months. And then she passed away in August. So I had an eight month old and I hadn't even taken a breath or even thought about death or right you know what what's next it was like i was living you know trying to help raise the three kids and basically be a caretaker um, Mm -hmm. and a caregiver for my late wife and then it was done Mm -hmm. and i was kind of lost and honestly when when jess and i started talking i was looking for an ear Mm -hmm. you know to Mm -hmm. try to get through this because i really was struggling and, and not understanding why and all of the questions that you have for God yes. but just just a couple of weeks i think after she passed away my oldest son actually said to me dad when are we going to get a new mom mm-hmm. like he already knew that, that that space needed to be filled mm-hmm. and i hadn't even it hadn't even crossed my mind mm-hmm. you know but i think i prayed that night and just said god you're going to have to help me cuz i i'm not looking to that at all. Mm -hmm. And when Jess and I met, it was like, God just opened this door in my heart that said, there's room for one more. Mm -hmm. But as we got married and got closer together, it's like, you can't really share that. I can't share those feelings with her. And, you know, at some point, I got to let that go. And that that was really hard. Our first year of marriage, we did try to be each other's therapist. And there was a point where we finally just said, no more, let's mm. go seek somebody else out to share this stuff with, because this isn't fair to each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at this point, 10 years, looking back at
2: that first year, you were looking for something in the other that you now feel like was inappropriate. What were you looking for? What did? What were you needing the other person to give you?
0: I think in a lot of ways, we were. we would often like seek validation even we, we shared everything, the good, the bad, the, the stuff that we didn't necessarily like in our first marriages mm-hmm. and seeking validation for, you know, like that was kind of strange in that marriage, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of thing, like <laughs> like for one, I can think of one example. Um, we would both go to bed without our, our first spouses and entering the new marriage, neither one of us particularly liked that trait in our previous relationships. And we kind of discussed it and we were like, we don't want to bring that to this relationship. Let's always try to go to bed together um, type of thing. But we overshared. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I, I know way too much about her and Ryan knows way too much about Jason. Like those should have been sacred memories to that relationship. Hmm. But we just went too far. And that would kind of haunt us in the coming years. Ten years in, yeah. we're we're over it.
2: Yeah. So there's an upside and a downside to sharing. Right. Uh, the upside might be in the immediate, you get that validation that you're looking for about some feeling you had about the previous marriage. But the downside is then sort of burdens Mm -hmm. the current relationship with now thoughts of seeing the other person with their former spouse that's that type of thing
0: yes and i mean looking back to it's all tied to insecurity you know Uh he and i didn't have enough time to have a shared history together Uh so what our conversations tended to gravitate towards were these shared histories we had with these other people Mm. which does bubble up these insecurities and then you have the whole rest of the world who has this model of never speak ill of the dead Mm -hmm. so us sinful people in a sinful world, in a relationship that we're trying to figure out and everybody else in the whole world is looking at these two people who passed away and they're now on pedestals of perfection, which we can never Mm -hmm. live up to. So it's just all this stuff that had we had like somebody come alongside us and help us work through some of that, I think it would have been really beneficial.
2: So if you were talking to somebody, Ryan, right now, who's listening, who is widowed, perhaps single, or perhaps in a new marriage, blended family situation, what advice would you give them about sharing regarding previous spouse?
1: I think um, it's really that's really a difficult question. Um, I think therapy, I think, yeah. is is really key to that because when you first meet somebody, they're more open-minded to, yeah, share. Oh, yeah, I want to know everything. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it's like, oh, 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 oh no, I do not want to know that. No, 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 <laughs> except for that. You know, so I think, or know, we, it's
0: thrown back into your face in an argument, like oh, right. you yeah. said she did this. Yeah. So <laughs> now it's like, like
1: that's the yeah. hard. That's where the difficulties come in, is mm-hmm. when you have to. You feel like, well, I'm not good at that. Mm-hmm. What he was good at, mm-hmm. or yeah. vice versa, and it's like, so now I have to try to live up to that, or I'm going to be constantly compared to that. So I think the best thing is to communicate early on um, in those relationships, and just be cautious. You wouldn't talk about your exes uh, before you got married the first time very openly. But yeah. I think as we were married and happily married, we felt like uh, permission uh, yeah. to share all the good stuff. And it's like, oh, well, they're sainted now yes. and they can do no wrong and they can't even defend themselves. Right? Yes. So it it was a challenge. You but- know, one of the things I'm hearing you say, and this is something we've
2: talked about on this podcast before, and it's I call it the color of your us. If I could just give you a simple illustration, and then I'd love for you guys to just react to what I hear you saying. So the color of your us is a combination of who two people are when they get married. So if you're yellow and you marry red, well, your us is orange, right? It's some combination of the two of you, your personalities, your temperaments, your giftings. And then your us is that working out of how we do life together. It's not only our togetherness and our passion and our connectedness, but it's also our style and our ritual and just the little details of life and how we work out how we go to bed together, you know, whether you go first or I go first, that's all a part of the color of your us. Well, you're used to orange because Mm -hmm. you were yellow, you married red, and you had orange. Well, you're still yellow when you move into a second or subsequent marriage, but this time you married blue. Guess what? Your color of your us is green and it's different. And well, green is not orange. And sometimes that's really good because as you said, there's things you didn't care for in the previous us that you can change now. But sometimes there's other things you did like, but then there's the comparison thing. Well, wait a minute, are you saying you still want orange? Well, cause we're green and we're not gonna be orange. And so does that mean you're unhappy with our us? That's what I hear you saying
1: react to that. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think even, you know, let's say w- me and my first wife were green and I was the blue one and I kind of melded towards the green a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not blue anymore. Yeah, yeah. So whenever, when I lost her and met Jess, I thought, I can redo this. I don't have to be dark blue or I don't have to be green. I can be whatever it is I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I think my personality and and some of those things that I had held back in my first marriage came out in the open. And Jess, I'd have to give credit to for a lot of that stuff because I didn't communicate very well at all Mm -hmm. in round one, Mm -hmm. but I learned how to communicate with her because it wasn't an option. But I think, yeah, that's a tough one. Like, trying to meld those colors the first time around. Yeah. And then you have to kinda regroup and reboot and start over. What do what do you think?
0: I you have always been extremely adaptable, which has worked well in our relationship because I'm not (laughs) I'm like I'm pretty even keel and have always like what you see is what you get like you say like I didn't force him to communicate but it was highly encouraged like Mm -hmm. you need to open your mouth and start telling me how you're feeling or this isn't going to work so you did
1: Mm -hmm. but I would say
0: like I was blue in the first marriage and I'm blue in this marriage (laughs) and I don't know where you are now I'm I'm like
1: up and down (laughs) yeah I do vary I'm like a chameleon, Yeah. sometimes good, sometimes bad. Yeah, this is good. You know, I think the
2: takeaway is every us has a color to it, has a hue to it. There will be things that are similar to a previous relationship, things that will be different. Mm -hmm. But it's the comparison and the contrast, and that's a space where insecurity can thrive is in the comparisons. And so you need to guard against sharing too much information. Don't you think that's also an internal thing? like you also have to guard against comparing in your own head this relationship, mm-hmm. that person versus the other person?
0: Well, we say you know, when we got married, it was the two became one, not the four became one, mm-hmm. and um ten years later, we don't have these problems at all. Like I said earlier, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's those first couple of years where yeah. you're not sure of your place in the relationship. you mm-hmm. have all these insecurities as time goes on like we have such a shared history now and we've been through everything together at this point and we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary and i was married to jason for 10 years as as well Mm -hmm. so now i have as much time with ryan as i had had with jason Mm -hmm. and i would just say to anybody listening time does heal a lot of those insecurities and wounds but you have to give it enough time keep working Um, at it Keep working at it, because if you check out at year five or six, mm-hmm. you have no idea how much better it could have really gotten at yeah. 10, 11, 12 years.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good word. We say that to our listeners all the time. Most blended family couples quit before it ever has a chance mm-hmm. to get good because they don't yeah. give the cooking process uh, enough time to really get there. And, well, uh, and
0: we kind of laugh with eight kids. Like we've threatened, yeah. like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I've stormed off. And then it's like, mm, but I don't want to do eight kids by myself. So honestly, like the eight kids yeah. almost kept us together
1: it helped <laughs> to sure. a place
0: where we're now like in a really good place,
1: being persistent. But, and right. but we learned, yeah. I think we learned how to talk about that stuff too. When we did share things, we finally did decide that. You know, I had 14 years of experience with that person mm. before I met her. And she said, I want to know more about you. Well, then if you want to know more about me, you're going to have to know about those last 14 years. So mm. what we learned to do is instead of saying when we were in, hmm. Hmm. you know, this place or at that place or doing this, it was just I,
2: hmm.
1: when I was. You know over there doing this and and then it felt better like it wasn't just everything i my whole identity wasn't with my first wife i still had my own identity Mm,
2: that's really good okay i want to wrap back around to where we started this conversation it was in the midst of loss that you guys met and if i'm hearing you right you really attached to one another quickly because you were hurting and in that sorrow it pushed you towards this new relationship. And then one day you sort of woke up and said, whoa, there's a lot going on here, and we've got to now deal with it because you know, at some point you were already married, and it went from there. I want to kind of go back to the sadness and grief narrative again. Um, Again, Jessica, yours was a little different. You had three years prior to your husband passing. Ryan's was a shorter period of time, compact. I don't know if you guys know this about me. I have a little perspective about this. I didn't lose a spouse, but I have lost a child. My 12 year old son passed away, and start to finish for us was 10 days. So it wasn't like sudden, you know, get a phone call and, it, you know, there's been a car wreck or something. But 10 days is not a long period of time, right? So I really get the now what do I do? How do we cope? How do we move forward? What do I do with this? I'm trying to process all of this. And life demands that you sort of do life anyway, and you have other children and they're grieving and you're trying to help them, but you don't know how to help yourself. I don't know if that's a part of your journey, but there's a lot there that is just heavy and hard and thick and deep. It's like walking through mud. That's what I used to tell people. I'm up to mud in my eyeballs. I'm not making much progress. (laughs) You're not making good time when you're walking through mud. And yet... There's this new thing out there, this person who gives you something to be hopeful about. So talk about that dynamic there. Is that part of what
1: added to the rush into love, do you think? Looking back, it's um, a simple answer. I I lived by faith up until that point, and I wanted to just trust that God would work it out. Hmm. You know, it took me a little bit of time to accept that. but. You know, I've always lived that way, and I think Jess has too. And you live in faith, so you either believe it or you don't believe in it. Mm. And God doesn't want us to be sad. He doesn't want us to be mournful all the time. You know, the Ecclesiastes and talk about. There's a time for that, and and then there's a time for joy. And I didn't like being sad. Mm. I don't. I don't want that. So when I prayed, it was very specific. God, I don't want to be sad. Mm. I don't want to mourn. I I want to get past this and I want to find happiness and I got a, I got a lot of feedback from other widowers as well. They actually just said, you take care of you mm. and everything else will work itself out. So I think that's what I did is I focused on well, what do I need to make me happy mm. and I sought that out and I trusted that God would work it out and, and He did. I'm not saying there weren't mountains to climb mm. um, in the meantime and, and I fell back often um, into depression. and sadness you know but you know it does work itself out and and in time um, if you do trust and believe in god he will work it out for you he wants you to be happy one way or another
0: I would say yeah we did know god's hand was on all of this but there was still a level of using each other as giant Mm band-aids through our grief Mm -hmm. i mean if you have the choice do you want to sit around and cry all day and wallow in bed or do you want to have like these happy endorphins racing through your body over Mm -hmm. this newfound love yes Um, yeah so we rode that for a while for sure and i'm just very black and white and even after jason's funeral i remember driving home in the car and pulling into the driveway and looking down at my wedding ring on my hand and going i'm not married anymore this is a lie Mm -hmm. and i took it off and put it in my jewelry box and never put it back on i'm not willing to wallow in mistruths that I try to tell myself mm. or like I need to face reality and then I can begin movement forward. And it was a very slow movement forward, but Ryan was part of that movement forward. Mm. And we did a lot of things wrong, but <laughs> God was in the middle of it all. Yeah, And we knew that. And
2: that's the game changer. I mean, when mm-hmm. you're faithful and you trust and you just hold on to him, I mean, it's an ugly ride. I mean, for a lot of people, it's just Hard. I mean, I know my grief journey has been ugly, ugly, and yet God's still in it. It doesn't, so the experience of sadness and sorrow doesn't necessarily mean that God's not there. It doesn't mean that He's not, it doesn't care. It doesn't mean any of that. Although sometimes we tell ourselves that, but that's not the reality at all. He is there. And so it comes back to again, Lord, you're my rock in the middle of this raging river that I can't control.
0: And isn't that life, you know, constant, this constant push and pull between sadness and struggle and Mm -hmm. joy and pain and that's just Mm -hmm. life. You know, we have so much of that sadness and struggle now too, Mm -hmm. but there's also joy. Mm
2: -hmm. And again, grief is so individual. The way a listener responds to their grief journey can be totally different than yours. Mm -hmm. You know, they may not be as black and white. It just may not be as simple. And the ring has stayed on their finger for a really long time. There's a lot of good ways to grieve. I mean, I think that's one of the strange things about grief is that any new grief journey has a life of its own. But if you don't know how to grieve, you kind of question how you grieve. (laughs) And then you're like, am I doing this right? Should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Should I be feeling this? Should I not be feeling that? It's like, well, that's not the point. you know. uh, It is your journey. You just try to hold on to God in the midst of it and stay faithful with Him. That's the one thing you definitely need to try to strive for. But the expressions of grief are gonna vary so much. I'm wondering about your children. So we already heard from Ryan a little bit in terms of one of your kids said, when are we going to get another mom? And by the way, I'm wondering, I'd love for you to speak at some point to whether that made you feel permission to move on? Like how did you interpret that whole thing? But what about the other kids? Obviously.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: right. I mean, Somewhere in there that felt okay. Right. But um, well, what about the other kids? How did they grieve and what were their responses to a new person coming into their world? All that change and transition.
0: Well, Caleb had asked me the same thing. Mom, when do you think you're gonna get us another dad? Hmm. And I was like, honey, it's not like I can just go to Walmart and pick out a
2: dad for you. (laughs) I'm I'm glad you told him that. (laughs)
0: Like one, I'm a 33 year old widow with four kids. Mm. Like I'm not a hot commodity, but (laughs) apparently (laughs) there was a guy out there. (laughs) Um, Honestly, our beginning years it was not that challenging. The huh. we, kids
1: were really young. They were
0: really young, yes. and I think that worked in our favor.
1: Yes, I think it we did. We did
0: get them into grief groups with other children. We got them into therapy, and then we moved to rural Tennessee, and it just kind of felt like everything was good. Like, this is our new family. We relied really heavily on one another, and we had a lot of fun. I would say as the kids are aging, we're going through so many things that we had Mm -hmm. never anticipated um, as they're becoming teenagers and having questions about their identity and kind of raging out, you know, about real mom, not real mom, those types of realities. Yeah. In the past couple of years, it has been far more difficult where the kids are concerned than Mm -hmm. it ever was in their younger years.
1: Yeah. And I think we started off, we didn't necessarily want to be a step family. Mm -hmm. We just wanted to be a family. So... Mm -hmm. You know, we did. We talked to them about changing their name, um, her kids, and let them make that decision on their own when they were ready. And if that was something they wanted to do, and we just wanted to be one, uh, and then we just let them talk. We let them tell us whatever they felt. We were emotional in front of them. Uh, we didn't hide behind anything. So I think they they did better. Like she said, when they were really little, mm. um, mm-hmm. they just like acted like this was normal right like, okay like, good this no. is our new
0: family this is my yeah. new
1: mom this is my new dad this is yeah. our new house um and all these did new did friends really
0: well. to play with you know because I brought siblings and he right. brought siblings oh, so right. it was yeah. like fun
1: they meshed
2: so well mm-hmm. okay and by the way young children that's pretty common for them to do so if yeah. the kids were talking to me right now you if you guys were not in the room and the kids were just talking to me and I asked them, so as of late, I hear you guys have started asking new questions and having new feelings. What commentary would you give me on this whole family journey? What would they say now?
0: We've point blank asked some of them. Um, Our two oldest graduated a few weeks ago. (laughs) That's when they graduated. (laughs) And I asked our oldest, you know, what did you think of your childhood? I'm just like, my own insecurities, mm-hmm. yeah. like, did you feel like we gave you a good childhood? And yeah, it was great, like any, yeah. anything you would do different, or did you feel like we gave you enough time? Or, no, it was a good childhood, mom. It was hmm. good.
1: Hmm. He was the easiest one. He was the easy one. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> our teenage girls would probably have a lot more to say to you. Um, there, I think, there's big feelings there right now. I think,
1: honestly, to me, it's, it's all outside influence. I don't think, I think they've handled it very well. It's when everybody else steps in and finds out, like their new teacher is like, oh, I didn't know your mom died. And then they want to feel sorry for them. And then they, our kids are like, they're part of a big family and they're going, wait a minute can I benefit from this somehow? Mm-hmm. So if I make this more than it is, more than I feel, will I get more attention? And a few of them have really embraced that. And then with grandparents, you know, who try to reach out and remind them, Hey, don't, don't forget, you know, don't forget about this person. And and we don't, we don't allow that either, but we don't, we're not going to bring it up to try to make them sad. And I think a lot of the outside influence has done that. Hmm. So the girls, are processing fresh, new, in
2: this season of life. That is definitely something we teach. Grief is developmental, and kids will continue to grieve it at every season of their life, and there'll be a new filter on it, a new dynamic around Mm it, you know, other people uh, speaking into that. It is what it is. It's never going to go away. That will always be the case in every season of their life and in your life. And so one of the things we generally advise people and I'd love to hear your reaction to this. It's just keep the grief conversation going. Like whenever something pops, you go with it.
0: Yeah, I I think we do. And we're back to looking at therapy again and some grief groups Mm -hmm. again. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's sticky dynamics. And with our girls too, my biological 14 year old falls in between, his bio 16-year-old and 11-year-old. Mm-hmm. So that can get tricky. Yeah, <laughs> And um, we've seen, too, as they've aged, more of this loyalty towards the bios. Mm. Um, that mm. when they were younger, they all just meshed and they had fun and they played. and But we're, we're seeing that movement towards the bios who feel safe now and then you know both of our youngest have absolutely no recollection of this person
2: Mm.
0: who was their father or mother and i think that's really painful that they're trying to work through that and one other thing all of the kids everything they think about in terms of late mom or dad is also again through that lens of sainthood mm. so if i ask them to clean their room or i get upset about something or whatever it's my mom, my, would, have never my mom would have never done that that. Mm. Right. and it's like mm, she would have
2: yeah yeah <laughs> yeah
0: she would have been a mom and yeah. he he's taken the rein with those conversations i don't necessarily feel like that's my place but he'll sit down and say no your mom would have you know, busted right. you too.
2: So Blood talks to blood. That's a good yes. principle. Yes. And yeah. so it's even more strange to think about the youngest children who don't have any memories of their biological parent. And so they don't really know where their loyalties lie. And so their siblings may be going, hey, aren't you on our team? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, That's I exactly am. That's exactly
0: what's going but
2: on. But <laughs> But I'm also on their team. Like, I don't right. really know... Yeah, I can totally see how that just would create some...
0: And then you throw some attachment issues into the pot as well.
2: And I mean, this is the journey of grief. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's a big takeaway for our listener, it's blended family does not repair what was lost. It creates something new, something different that has its own life, its own set of relationships. And you have to continue to grieve what has been lost. Developmentally, along with children, different seasons of life, it just is. It's not a statement about you did it wrong or you shouldn't have done it this way or that way or the timing of it. Get... Don't do that to yourself. I think far too many people start unraveling their own story when they experience hiccups. That's not helpful and it's not accurate. Everybody experiences this in one form or another. It's just, all right, God, how do we handle this? Let's walk through it. Let me turn a corner and talk about ghosts for a minute. you got a whole chapter on this, and I I really appreciated it a lot. I talk about ghosts a lot in my previous writing. Often, though, it's connected to a divorce narrative where you have that ghost of pain and heartache sitting on your shoulder of how the relationship came apart. This is a little different when it's the ghost of a relationship that was good, that was happy, that was... Family was complete. It was something there. I'm not saying it was a perfect marriage. I'm just saying it was all right. It didn't unravel, you know, um, you mm-hmm. had a family. And so let's just talk around those things that sort of haunt you as you move into a new relationship. Jess, you used to tell a story about red cooking pots. <laughs> <laughs> Could you tell our listeners? I thought it was a great story.
0: <laughs> well, when I married Ryan, he brought loads and loads and loads of paraphernalia from his previous life into my new home (laughs) paraphernalia (laughs) and
1: (laughs) lots of it lots Lots of of it it.
0: he's he's a bit of a hoarder um and i didn't like most of it to Mm -hmm. be honest it Mm -hmm. It's nothing against her. She liked loud, bright colors, red, orange, yellow. I don't. Like, I'm more of a neutral pottery barn type Mm. of girl. Mm. And Mm. I would look at this stuff and just want to vomit. I didn't like it. And it Mm. was all over my house. Mm -hmm. And in particular, these bright red Teflon pots that he had bought her for her birthday. It was one of the nicest gifts he had ever gotten her. And he put them up in our new cupboards. And he doesn't cook or bake anything in our family, mm. that all falls on me. And so every time I'm baking a nice dinner for my family, I'm using these red pots that I don't even believe are a safe product because I don't believe in Teflon. Mm. And yeah. I think they're ugly.
2: You had lots of reasons to really so. not like these things.
0: And the so issue was, was, was much on. deeper. I yeah. mean, we all understand that. And so one day I packed them up in a red or in a goodwill box and he saw them and it, an argument ensued. You know, why would you get rid of these? They were Mm. hundreds of dollars. Your pots were crap when you entered this marriage. And they were. (laughs) I shopped at garage sales. And I said, I don't like them. I don't like all this stuff all over my house that Mm. doesn't make my house feel homey. It doesn't, you know, your house should be a sanctuary of peace. And it didn't feel like that for me because it wasn't my stuff. Mm. And it was was like all tied to another woman who he had had, an intimate relationship with and I didn't feel like that was fair is that the deeper
2: issue for you Oh yeah for sure yeah yeah and
0: and I didn't like it either um,
2: so you needed to get rid of him yeah and he didn't want to get rid of him and did you interpret that as he doesn't want to get rid of her
1: yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll take you to a hard place. <laughs> well, right. it was a it was a pretty right. nasty fight, but it did it did work out later on because uh-huh. what it did is it brought attention to me that I was unaware. I had no idea what she was doing. Like it was like you just want to get rid of all my stuff. Like mm. it had nothing to do with you know she didn't like it or whatever. I I was totally oblivious to the meaning behind it, and mm. I I honestly don't think it came out in that argument. Hmm. I think it came out later where it was, I'm not even sure she knew deep down why she wanted to get rid of him so badly. Um, But, you know, on my side of it, I grew up with nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up. My mom, my dad was gone and my mom raised me and my sister and she got married later on as I became a teenager. But it was, it was hard. Like we had to work from the time we could and you don't throw away good
2: stuff when you've you don't
1: throw away good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I spent, you know, a lot of energy and and time figuring out, you know, exactly what to buy her and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it was important to me, but it had nothing to do with um the intimacy of it that, mm-hmm. that Jess felt from yeah. it. Um it was just more about that's good quality stuff. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't just give it away. You know, there's there's good and bad in red cooking pot
2: arguments, right? <laughs> I mean the bad is we're having an argument and a fight and we're 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 against each other in this moment and the good is this reveals something that really has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. It reveals insecurity, questions, you know, the meaning of the red pots and where the attachment lies and our future. And it sounds like that eventually revealed that to you guys and you figured it out.
0: Yeah, we did. I think it came down to, um, We had so much stuff, Hmm. so much stuff when we got married. And it kind of stole our peace, too, Hmm. because there was so much stuff. And it came down to recognizing, like, if we're maintaining all this stuff all the time, we're not putting our energy into our relationship or our children because we're so busy maintaining all this stuff. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. that led to a lot of purge sessions, which were really helpful. And then he's not really attached to any of that stuff anymore because mm-hmm. oh, we don't have much of it
2: it all disappeared <laughs> okay. i don't i don't know what happened to um, <laughs> Good, goodwill is really happy Goodwill right. did really right. well with yeah, that. yeah they did but um, it doesn't
0: matter anymore but that was part of his grief too i yes. believe yeah like holding on to that a little bit longer whereas once you recognize that like It doesn't bring the person back because you're holding on to the pot you gave her. Um, And instead, it's making this person I now married and love really Mm -hmm. miserable.
2: Yeah. When it comes to symbols and meaning like that, uh, you know, I just invite our listener, when something like that rises up inside you and you have a red cooking pot argument, ask yourself, what's going on with me? What is underneath this? What is driving me to really be worried about this and concerned about what this means to the other person? And what does that reveal in me? And, you know, Usually there's something there. And whatever that strong emotion is, that that pain or fear, uh, that's something you have to learn how to deal with and invite God to help you with it. It sounds like you guys have discovered a new truth about pots. Sometimes they are symbolic of prior relationships, but it doesn't necessarily have an implication for whether or not you have a strong
1: relationship. Have you gotten... Kind of around that. Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I held on to that bitterness for quite a while though, because mm. I, I accepted it, but I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I still didn't understand it completely way back then. Um, and even in that book, I got to write my take on it. Mm. It brought up emotion. It, mm. it did, even when I was writing about what I really felt about that, mm-hmm. and I, and it really wasn't tied to my marriage. It was just it was something i didn't want to let go of yeah. and and that's right and i didn't know why and honestly i still don't really know you know deep down exactly what it was you about you told me
0: it was kind of tied to your marriage though because it was like one of the very few nice gifts but it was you a, had
1: bought her it was something yeah, that was valued to me mm-hmm. Not necessarily to the marriage. It was like I put forth effort and really thought this through, and and I think the gift was really appreciated. And maybe that's maybe maybe that's more about what it was about, as I was appreciated mm. for it. Um, but yeah, I held on to it for a while. But that's not Jess's fault that's my own insecurity hmm. and that's something i had to really face and i did later on and i think that's why it's easier for us to communicate those things now yeah and
0: i don't think it's fair to ever ask a woman that who you want to marry to live in like a shrine to their late wife mm-hmm. or ex-wife or whatever if it makes her uncomfortable i would say those feelings need to take precedence yeah over your feelings
2: hmm What I love, Ryan, about what you just said is that you got to what was underneath that for you. You got to the insecurity that was there and you made a decision about whether or not you were going to hang on to that insecurity. I mean, oftentimes what we do when we get to these moments and everybody listening right now has got a red cooking pot thing (laughs) in your marriage. Everybody does. It's what reveals something, some insecurity in you about your relationship. We could list a thousand different cooking pot little arguments or, or or moments. And at the end of the day, we have to decide what am I going to do with that insecurity in me? Am I going to let that rule me? Or am I going to figure out a new path around this? Or am I going to walk through this insecurity and trust you in spite of my insecurity? I mean, that's the moment where we grow up in relationships. I really believe that. And there's all sides and every side has to be considered. So, Yeah, Jessica's got a point. If there's a shrine and I'm living in the shrine, boy, is that uncomfortable. And at the same time, what's the reason for the shrine? Is there a reason? Is Is there something valid that led to the symbolisms being held on to in the first place? All of that has merit, and it takes a lot of patience, I think, for us as couples to listen to the other person, to hear their point of view, to try to give consideration to the need within it. And then at the same time to give voice to what's troubling us and to do so in an environment in a way that ultimately we can come together and say, but our us matters. And how do I honor you in this red cooking pot (laughs) Mm -hmm. conversation? And it's not always easy. I mean... no
0: and early on yep. it led to explosive arguments i yeah, would say now when we feel something we'll say to each other what's this really about mm-hmm. Good and, question. and then it's a pause what is this really about have the kids been like driving me crazy today and i'm lashing out at him or am i feeling stressed because i took on too many projects or mm-hmm. you know whatever it may be we don't really have those shrine arguments anymore um what we have is what we have and Mm -hmm. some of it's from his previous life some of it's from mine but we've accepted it like as our stuff now but we don't tend to have those explosive arguments over that kind of thing anymore
2: one of the other subjects you write about and i just so appreciate it in your book uh, about lucas A unique aspect to your blended family story is you have a special needs child. You know, it occurred to me as I was reading that when a family member gets a serious illness, as your former spouses did, everything orients around that one person. That stressor, if you will, dominates your family's calendar, your schedule. It becomes the focal point of attention and energy. It has to. Mm
1: -hmm. And of
2: course it does. So everybody in the family has to accommodate to that thing. To a degree, a special needs child brings a similar dynamic to any family. It's big. It at times dominates decisions, calendar, schedule, the emotional climate of the home, parenting decisions, on and on it goes. And it requires, if you will, if I could use that word, like everybody has to accommodate around it to some degree. And some people are more willing than others. You have siblings, you have step-siblings in your case. I'm just, let's just unpack that for a minute. I'd love to hear what your learnings and takeaways have been now 10 years in a blended family with a special needs child.
1: It's It has a lot of challenges. Um, I think the easiest way for me to explain it as a caregiver is 90% of our energy goes toward him. Mm-hmm. And then we have to divide the 10% amongst the rest. And that's not fair. Them, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's so we have to make decisions on a daily basis where's that 10% going to go? Because the 90s taken no matter what, and as he's gotten older, he's gotten more and more difficult to raise and to handle because his aggression has gotten worse mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's bigger and harder to manage. So, but all the kids have to be part of it, they've accepted him from day one. Um, and I I'm sure they don't like it, but kids struggle with lots of stuff. I think it's been good for them um, Mm -hmm. to witness, and it gives them compassion and um, they're less judgment when they see other kids that are different than them. I guess they don't approach it as normal kids would.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and we have lots of conversations about this is just your story. Um, You can wallow in the unfairness and injustice of it, or you can make something good out of it, and I think most of them, don't resent luke outside of the moves that we've had to Mm. make for him and Mm. i don't know that that percentage is quite accurate now that we live in michigan because we are surrounded by friends and family and we moved to michigan because luke would have full-time summer school and we wanted to be able to spend more time with our other kids while luke was in a safe fun environment for him so i think most of our decisions in life have been driven by what does Luke need? What does our future going to look like if we don't get Luke what he needs? But I don't think the kids resent him. Mm. They just maybe resent
1: the decisions the, that we've had to yeah, make. Yeah,
0: the hard decisions we've had to make. But I yeah. think the blame probably falls on us, mm. not him.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. And I and yes, I mean, you do carry it. I mean, how could you blame him? But at the same right. time, their life is affected dramatically Mm -hmm. by him and you know i imagine that's just a tough place for the the other kids to maneuver and work through you've obviously had some conversation with your kids because you asked them how do you feel about Mm -hmm. this and what's the impact Mm -hmm. i was thinking about the 10 percent comment that ryan you made and like how do you talk to the kids about these realities do you just make it a practice to talk on a regular basis? Does it only come up every once in a while? I mean, how's that flowed? It usually you? comes up in
1: anger,
0: right? When they're being mouthy. Uh, come here. We're gonna have a talk with you in our
2: bedroom.
1: <laughs> you no, know, honestly, though, from the very beginning, we've we've had open communication with our kids about mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Um, from their the death of our spouses, we talked about how what exactly happened and what it means and. The moves, um, good, you know, we present to them as a family and say, hey, we want all of you to understand this. This is why we're doing it. You don't have to like it. You can be mad about it, but this is what it's going to be. We've already made the decision. Mm-hmm. We have family meetings pretty regularly um, mm-hmm. and just sit down when something's not right and say, okay. This is what we're seeing. You guys tell us if it's different than what we see. You know what's going on, and let them open their mouths. And they typically do. They're pretty open yeah. about what they're feeling with us.
0: The emotional climate right now is pretty fragile, just because this move is fresh. Yes. Um, some of them weren't super excited about it. Had to leave friends behind. Yeah. Um,
2: In their teenage years. Yes. Yeah. yeah
0: so it's touching base a lot mm-hmm. and trying to have that one-on-one time where we can touch base and see how everybody's feeling and doing and i don't have any problem with honest feelings i my problem comes when you're not talking like what what are you feeling what's going on you got to talk to somebody you don't even have to necessarily talk to me but
2: yeah. you mm-hmm.
0: got to get that stuff out of you because mm-hmm. we can't heal if we're just like bottling it all up into you know in our hearts and not talking about it
2: yeah. Anytime of transition, some step families find even 10 years, 15, 20 years into their journey that bio-parents really need to stay extra connected to their biological children. I'm not saying step-parents can't be an asset. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there seems to be something kind of a salve there that gets mm-hmm. applied when that happens. How do you guys balance that? I'm just wondering if you have found that to be something that's helpful for you, or how do you balance it with all the other demands?
0: There's guilt Mm. because it does feel different, you know, bio versus adopted. You can't Mm -hmm. deny that fact. Like, there is a, like, I feel like my bio kids just innately know that I love them Mm. and would do anything for them, whereas Mm -hmm. the adopted, they're kind of always asking that question, like, are you going to leave? Are you going to do you still love me? Did I do something that made you so mad that you don't love me anymore? And there's this constant like reaffirming mm-hmm. no, I still choose you. I choose this family. I wanted you. Um, but there's guilt for me a lot just in how easy those bio relationships are and how difficult the other ones are. And mm-hmm. then constantly feeling like you're having to plug in to the ones that are more difficult and yeah. then taking time away from the easy ones. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: the, the easy one, you don't wanna take those for granted either. I no, mean, you don't. You don't want your kids to feel just you know dropped off and abandoned no. because you're spending so much. Yeah, so there's guilt all the way around. There no is, Yeah.
0: especially with eight kids.
2: Mm-hmm. Like it's, you're spread but we do thin. try
0: to have, we, we recognize when we have a child that's really struggling and bio mom or bio dad tries to have those conversations.
1: Mm. Steer
0: him back on track.
2: What does the average person listening right now not really understand about having a special needs child? I don't know, Lucas. Um, Mm -hmm. Sounds like he's mid to high maintenance. Yeah, he is. So what does the average person not know? And the other side of this question is, what would you like for them to know?
0: I think the isolation and exhaustion, um, we don't get out much Mm -hmm. just because it's so difficult with him at this stage of life. And I know we're not the only family in the world who's kind of hiding out behind closed doors Mm -hmm. because it's easier, it's just easier than, if we make the effort to bring him and the kids out, we know we will be wiped out within two hours because one of us will be on all the other kids and one of us will be on Luke exclusively. Mm So it's a huge endeavor. And I think what I just want the general public to understand is these families are everywhere. They're probably not showing up in church because it's so exhausting. But anything you can do to lighten their load a little bit, Mm. like drop off a meal or a pizza or a card, I'm praying for you just to see us behind our closed doors makes all the difference in the world.
2: That's good. I wanted to pointedly ask you, what could the body of Christ do better? To support special needs families, and you just gave me one, and that's good. Yeah.
0: That, and I just wrote about this the other day too vacation Bible school. You know, I scour all the local listings for my younger children. Well, these special needs teenagers are sitting at home, bored out of their minds, and their families aren't going anywhere. If churches would start to offer something like this, for special needs teenagers, mm-hmm. you would bless the socks off of these families yeah. because even like a two or three hour break is huge. And nobody wants the teenagers. You know, yes. there's
1: they're you, scary, they're scary yeah. or
0: there's diapers involved. You know, nobody wants to change a 16 year olds right. diaper, right. but right. it's our reality.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, we need to serve the least of these and the caregivers who are caring for them. Mm.
2: I appreciate you saying that. You do write about that. You say to families, ask for help. So that assumes there's somebody who's offering help. Right. Mm -hmm. Say, find community and take time for self-care. Well, that's hard Mm because you're the one who has to provide care. (laughs) So finding that with each other within the household, boy, I would imagine that it's a lot of conversation between the two of you.
1: Self-care means one of us is going to be in more pain. Hmm. So if one of us has to take a break, the other one has to take on the extra load. So we, again, back to guilt, no matter what we do, even if we're trying to, you know, maintain our own health, it, you still feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, I'm not going to go play a to golf mm-hmm. because four hours mm-hmm. and my wife being, having to be at home, you know, it's not fair. Um, And the same for her. You know, if she wants to run, get a massage or something, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to get a massage, but I'm going to get groceries and cat food and all the things. So I don't feel as much guilt. So I accomplish something else. But then you come home and the other one is like... Okay, now it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get out of the house now. It just it's it's very challenging.
0: We've gotten creative though. We walk every day to, together two miles. Okay, and I feel like that's a form of self care. We pray together every morning. Yeah, we, we try to do a date night every every, every weekend, week, yeah. which is really. <laughs> Quite the marathon session because <laughs> we have to have Luke fed and bathed and in his right. jammies. Mm.
1: So she's getting <laughs> ready while I'm bathing him. And then, all right, let's go hurry, <laughs> hurry. Like
0: two hours. And then we have to be home to put Luke to bed.
1: Mm. But yeah.
0: we try.
2: You do what you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Find in your way. I appreciate that. Yeah. And let me turn another corner and go back to something we were talking about earlier. You talked about finding a therapist for yourself in your grief journey perhaps for your family, for kids, whatever is needed. I want to, for the first time, just say to our listeners, I've never said this before on this podcast, we now have what I call a recognized Smart Step Family Therapy provider list. And that's maintained at my website, smartstepfamilies.com therapy, smartstepfamilies.com therapy, where you can actually find people that have gone through additional training Uh, by me and working with blended family uh, situations. And so I'm pleased to say we have a growing list and that will continue to grow as counselors wanna go through that training. So for the first time, Christian step family therapists, you can find one around the country and many of them do virtual coaching and different things like that. You guys went and got counseling, how did it help? And I'm not just asking what specifically were the personal issues that you talked about, but just how did that help you get some perspective about your family's journey?
0: Well, we thought it was about our marriage, but it had more to do with our childhoods Hmm. and dealing with a lot of stuff that we had never dealt with.
1: insecurities. Mm -hmm.
0: And Yeah. And once we dealt with that stuff, it seemed like the marriage got a lot better. Hmm.
2: That's a pretty simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's good. Man, I've been in counseling a number of times in my life. And uh, let me tell you, there's always a family of origin element to it. Mm -hmm. Like it it is because those are the things that we carry with us. They get deeply embedded in who we are and we carry them into relationships, into work relationships, into all kinds of situations. Parenting tends to really bring that stuff out. And so, and your books and Kevin Lehman were extremely helpful as well. Um, <laughs> we have them all. <laughs> we have
0: all your books. We have all Dr. Lehman's yeah. books. <laughs>
2: uh, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I do know Kevin, and he is a riot. If you ever get a chance to mm-hmm. hang out with him, do it because you will never forget it. <laughs> We'd love to. Yeah. Uh, you know, one other thing that I really caught my eye when I was reading your book is when you guys got married, tell me if I got this right, there were 22 grandparents connected to your, at the time, seven children. Oh my goodness (laughs) (laughs) that math just blows the mind but immediately i go to navigating birthdays and holidays and people who all want a little piece of that family pie and like how do you do that and what boundaries have you had to put in place to keep sanity
0: no, that's why we ran away to rural Tennessee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Got it. I would say I would say that was the number one biggest issue and the one mm-hmm. we had the most arguments about really? in the beginning. Huh. Because everybody, like you said, wanted a piece of us. They didn't want to lose the kids. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to lose that connection, especially previous in-laws that struggled with where is their identity? Yes. Where do they fit into this new mold? And, oh, man, mm. trying to divide that up. Mm. And, and then not hurt feelings. Right. And it was impossible. Mm. So we finally just said, it's not about you. It's about us. Mm. So, yeah, we, we drew a line in the sand. <laughs> and this one is really good at boundaries. I'm terrible <laughs> at boundaries. Well, she did say she's black and white. I'm much better. <laughs> she's very black and white. It's very, no, that's wrong. Mm. This is right. Mm.
0: Well, because you know of all the books we have by the experts
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay the listener doesn't know she's really giving me the eye right now (laughs) yes no I I'm happy happy that she has boundaries and she sees things black and white because everything to me is gray yeah
0: but I wasn't Mm. great at it either there's a chapter about how we had people in and out of our house like every month when we first got married Mm. and I had never hosted somebody in my house growing up because my whole family was from you know the same area and then when i was married to jason we never had people stay with us either i mean he was going through cancer we had luke a special needs child so i marry him and they have people through their house constantly well
1: we had a tiny three-bedroom house growing up and family from another state came through on their way to disney world and 18 people slept in our den (laughs) with sleeping bags if you could get any broader yes uh, I'd i'd like to see that but that's about (laughs) as distant as you can get between the two upbringings
0: and then yeah our first year marriage we had somebody in our house almost monthly like family extended family out of towners and i was just like Ugh. We're dealing with our new relationship, seven kids, like
2: and of course you can see it from their point of view. A former in law, a grandparent who Still wants to be connected to the kids. Who still wants to be a part of the family story? And yet now there's yeah. this new, um, you know, what stepdaughter-in-law? Person. I don't know how right. to even say that. New
1: set of in-laws. Uh, yeah.
2: Right, and it's sort of like, okay, so where are we? And y- of course, you can see it from their side. And the kids want to stay connected to their grandparents. Like, that. yes, yeah, right, and yet. 22, like it's just impossible to meet everybody's expectations. And so at the end of the day, you're right. Boundary setting is important. I'm sure once you moved to Tennessee, somebody was mad. Oh, yeah, I'm sure.
1: Every, I think everybody was <laughs> mad. Because <Right>. we <laughs> didn't move us. towards anybody. Mm-hmm. It was we like moved away from everyone. Huh.
0: But we needed that. We needed that time to like figure out who we were as a family and to solidify our family bonds and like yeah. away from all the distractions. Yeah. And it was good for us.
2: And for that season, it was hard. Yeah, it was hard, but it does mm-hmm. seem like it served you well. And now you're in a different season, and
0: mm-hmm. you're
2: choosing to move closer to family. Right.
1: Yeah. To and, to one half of the family. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, to part of it. Because <laughs> how could right. you move right. closer to everybody? Um, so if there's one takeaway you have from this journey of moving away from family and trying to manage the boundaries, specifically about that, what would that be?
1: i would say make your family first Hmm. start there and then allow it to branch out from there because our identity starts within our family core and our values and we worked so hard to make sure that we didn't feel like a step family we wanted to just be a family and it takes a lot of effort but I just wanted to make sure that our family was first Mm -hmm. and then everyone else was second in line. Mm -hmm. And I wanted our kids to know that. And I wanted my new wife to know that. And it took me a while to figure that out. I think she really struggled with me always catering to everybody because I was so flipping about it all. It was like, yeah, sure. I'll host. Yeah, we'll host. Yeah, let's have it at our house. Mm -hmm. And I say, hey, honey, a bunch of people are coming And
0: I'm in the bathtub bawling. (laughs) Like, again, and there's this perception. I was... You know, I had to put on this perfect perception as a new Mm -hmm. wife and the new mom and I'm doing great and here's your home cooked meal and the house (laughs) is clean and (laughs) the kids are doing great. They're not struggling at all. And then maintaining that was just exhausting. Absolutely.
1: Mm. What advice would you give?
0: Um, Communicate. I think that's been the biggest game changer for us. Openly communicating like this isn't working for me. Mm. So what do we need to do? To make this work for both of us and a lot of that has been even like yes family can come visit but i don't necessarily want them in my house with profound special needs and seven other children so maybe they can rent an airbnb or a hotel room because that's just too much for me
1: and we and we wrote letters to everybody involved and just said This is what we're dealing with. Mm. Keep in mind, you're one of 22 Mm. grandparents, and we want everybody to stay connected. But the way it's going now, it's not going to work. So we gave them an option. But this is the only way it's going to work for us. The book is blended with grit and grace.
2: And now you know a little bit about the grit. Right.
0: (laughs) Hopefully a little bit about the grace, And hopefully a little bit about the
2: grace. (laughs) I got one last question for you guys. One of the really neat things in your book is that you— sprinkle it with recipes all the way through. And I just thought that was so neat. And often the recipes are kind of connected to the story or the chapter that it's embedded in. There's a reason for that. Let's just pull back for a second and reflect. What is a recipe for faithfulness when life steals control and security and stability from you? What would you say? You guys have been through a lot of situations not just the death of your former spouses but the whole transition into a new family a profound special needs child step siblings lots of kids all kinds of demands from extended family just a lot of situations have really stolen your you know control of life and stability you've been listening to my conversation with Ryan and Jessica Ronnie I'm Ron Deal, and this is Family Life Blended. We'll hear their recipe for faithfulness in just a minute. But before that, do me a quick favor. Would you give us a review, five stars, if this was helpful to you? I know that's a lot to ask, but that helps other people find us when you give us a review or a rating. Thank you so much for doing that. Do you remember our discussion about the red cooking pots (laughs) and how it reminded her of his intimate life with Casey? She wanted to get rid of them, but he didn't because they were good quality. Well, anyway, the pots meant very different things to both of them. The temptation for us is to see the conflict that they had as something to do with the meaning that they ascribed to the pots, or maybe who gets their way, or who should or shouldn't keep possessions from a previous spouse. But that's not really what the conflict is about. It's really about feelings of insecurity. The feelings that even preceded their marriage and will likely continue beyond their marriage, and how we cope with those feelings when we feel small in our spouse's eyes. Really, this is something Jessica has to deal with. It's not about pots. And I don't know about you, but I think we all do this, don't we? We have something inside us that we sort of make about some symbol and then we put our emotional well-being into the hands of our spouse or our children or our parents and we expect them to take away our insecurity and feeling insignificant. Well, they can't do that. I think instead what we need to do is find our worth in our relationship with God and in the truth about how he made us. Now, that's easier said than done, but let me tell you, this is a shorter road than the one you'll go down trying to control your spouse into giving you the worth that you're looking for, find it in the one who loves you most, who is most faithful in his love to you, the one who made you. If you'd like more information about my guest, you'll find it in our show notes, or you can check it out at the Family Life Blended podcast page at familylife.com slash blendedpodcast. Family Life our division family life blended has books and videos and online courses and live events all around the country that are designed to strengthen the relationships in your life that matter most my latest book in the smart step family series now with over a dozen resources in it is called preparing to blend and it's designed for engaged pre-blended family couples if you're getting married It'll help both you and the kids get ready for life after the wedding. If you're a leader or a pastor, it gives you a plan for premarital counseling that is designed just for blended families. Check out this and all our other resources. The show notes will tell you how. We do love your feedback. If you'll take a minute and give us some, we'd appreciate it. And if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can on the new Family Life app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Family Life Blended. Now, before we're done, let's get back to that recipe for faithfulness.
1: So what's a recipe for faithfulness? I'll steal your phrase, honey.
0: I know, you're gonna
2: just keep living. Oh,
0: no, that's not what I was gonna say. That's <laughs> the one that I,
1: I live by it. Yeah. And Ryan, what does that mean for you? Just keep living. Keep moving forward. Huh. You know, don't let anything back back you down. You're gonna run into all kinds of rough patches, but there is greener grass down the road mm-hmm. and there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, especially if you live as a Christian as a believer that no matter what happens on this earth, there's always the ultimate goal, you know, of heaven. So no matter what we're going through now, there's always something coming that's going to be better than what I'm in now. Jessica, what would you say? And
0: I would say faithfulness is always tied to obedience. Hmm. If the Lord calls you to it, it's just your job to move forward step by step into obedience to what he's called of you. And I'm a big believer, you may see the blessing this side of eternity, or you may see it the other side of eternity. But the only thing that we're called to do is to continue to obey what he calls of us. And he called us to this family. He called us to raise a special needs child. And it's our job to stay obedient.
2: Next time, we'll hear from two engaged couples reading my book, Preparing to Blend, about getting ready to become a blended family.
1: I really felt like I was being pulled in
2: two different directions because Miriam's here on one side telling me I'm not spending enough time with her, and then the boys are over on the other side feeling like I'm not spending enough time with them. That's Preparing to Blend couples, Miriam and Jamie and Jonathan and Peta next time on Family Life Blended. I'm Ron Deal. Thanks for listening. And thanks to our monthly donors, what we call Family Life Legacy Partners, for making this podcast possible. You can help too if you want by making a tax-deductible donation specifically for Family Life Blended. Just look in the show notes for a link. Believe me, it makes a big difference and we appreciate it. Our producer... Marcus Holt. Our mastering engineer is Justin Adams. Project coordinator, Anne Encaro. And theme music provided by Brayden Deal. Family Life Blended is produced by Family Life, helping you pursue the relationships that matter most.